Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, collaboration, cooperation, mutual aid, and non-domination in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. Today's episode is an interview with Professor Leonard Williams. I invited Leonard on the show because he is the author of a new book, Black Blocks, White Squares, Crosswords with an Anarchist Edge. Yes, crossword puzzles with themes and clues drawn from the ideas of anarchism. But in my conversation with Professor Williams, we not only touched about that book, but about the rise of anarchism in the 21st century, the connection of today's anarchism to the activism of the 60s. And indeed, Professor Williams convinced me that the act of constructing and solving crossword puzzles is part of the world of mutual aid. So after the theme song, join me for my interview with Professor Williams. And I do recommend the book, Black Blocks, White Squares. So my guest today is uh, Professor Leonard Williams. He's Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Manchester University in Indiana. And he's currently teaching courses on political theory and U.S. politics as a visiting professor at Georgetown University in Qatar. He has published numerous articles and books in political theory, including co-editing the 2018 book, Anarchism, A Conceptual Approach. He also creates crossword puzzles, and his puzzles have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and most recently one in the Andrews McMeal Universal Syndicate in September. He's joining me today to discuss his most recent book, Black Blocks, White Squares, Crossword with an Anarchist Edge, which came out in October of this year. Leonard, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here. So I thought I would start by asking you, before we get into the crossword puzzle about anarchism, I think I mentioned to you, I got my PhD, it was in the English department, but really I focused on political theory and political philosophy. And I read a little bit of David Graeber in one class in my last semester. Otherwise, anarchism was not discussed. I don't think we ever discussed Emma Goldman, uh, Jane Adams mentions Kropotkin once. I think that was my entire introduction to Kropotkin. So I, I went through the process without learning about anarchism. I'm curious how you came to anarchism. <laughs> how much time do we have? It's <laughs> oh, well. a long, long story. <laughs> um, you know, I, I try to hint at some of that in the introduction to the book, but, mm -hmm. but basically I've had a longstanding interest in social change and radical politics um, that came about largely because I grew up in the 50s and 60s and was drawn up in all of that um, by television news, of course, of the civil rights movement and the student movement and the anti-war movement. You know, I grew up in um, the area of Gary, Indiana, so the Chicago 68 convention, very much on my mind. Um, and so I, I, I read early on uh, in various radical literatures. Um, you know, I remember reading about Black Power, reading Carmichael, reading King, reading Malcolm X. I got quotations from Chairman Mao, the first chance it came out. You know, I, I've just been drawn to that sort of thing. So by the time college came around, I was, you know, pretty well steeped in, in reading Marx and, and other kinds of radicals. Um, and, you know, there were a number of people in the university who were self-identifying as anarchists. I wasn't at the time, but I was also reading them. Nonetheless, I mean, I've, I've one of my favorite experiences was reading both volumes of Living My Life by Emma Goldman, a book that I, I still treasure today. I wrote papers on uh, Bakunin, uh, as well as Marx and uh, St. Augustine, for that matter. <laughs> you know, so uh, I was, you know, working in these areas uh, quite frequently, both in my studies and, and, and in practice and reading um, 
radical perspectives on American politics at the time, you know, listening to people like Baba Ramdas and Noam Chomsky on the radio, you know, those kinds of things. So it, it's been a while. And I, I did do a, a master's thesis on uh, Georges Sorel, the French syndicalist who mm-hmm. clearly has some affinities with anarchism as part of that tradition at times, uh, but has some other affinities that are <laughs> less uh, tasteful. So yeah, I, I've been at it a long time. And what got me reconnected to it was having students who were identifying with anarchism uh, at, uh, around the time of the Seattle protests. And that reminded me of, of the 60s, uh, the energy in the streets, the arguments that were being held. And so I got back into it, um, this time as an academic, and started writing an article. And the first one I, I got published, it actually brought fan mail. And so that was surprising to say the least. Um, and then just kept going. That is, Leonard, that is such a cool story. I do want to say it's come up a few times in the podcast. The, I haven't talked much about the battle in Seattle, which really is a, a revival of anarchism as a movement. And I think, um, you know, that happened when I was in high school. And I just remember be, being confused, being confused as to what was happening, not knowing what uh, the WTO was and not knowing why anyone would be upset about it once I knew a little bit about it. And in that sense, this seems to be a generational story in that if the, the students that I teach now, the people who are younger than me, I'm 38, they know about Occupy Wall Street they know about Black Lives Matter, and they know my students will say explicitly, oh yeah, Black Lives Matter, it works on anarchist principles. We Uh did not know, or I did not know uh, in the late 90s that the World Trade Organization protest people said they were working on anarchist principles. My vision of anarchist was either late 19th century, early 20th century uh, murderers, or, Uh you know, people living in a commune without water, maybe 30 people in a 2000 square foot house. And I just knew that whatever those people were doing was not something viable, did not offer a road to a better future. Boy, have I, have I come a long way. Yeah, definitely. And and these things do happen in cycles to, to some degree. And so again, it was, it was that sense of familiarity of, of seeing that, that kind of energy and the kind of spirit that was there, the spirit of rebellion that I remember from growing up in the 60s and and being in university from 1970 on. Um, But there were other things that I think connected me to anarchism, even if I wasn't formally identified with it. My interpretation of, of Marx and especially his theories about human beings and about radical democracy, the Paris Commune and all that were always much more centered for me than um, talking about, you know, the base superstructure model or anything <laughs> of that, which, which, you know, is too mechanistic for me, for my taste. Um, and then later, you know, I remember um, in the late 70s, when I was in graduate school, I was kind of hanging out with Quakers and we were doing readings with, you know, from George Lakey and the movement for a new society, which obviously is, had, was influential on anarchist circles then and still is, um, you know, with the emphasis upon consensus decision-making and nonviolence and, you know, nonviolent training, um, all of that. So there are, there are lots of paths that have crossed multiple times and crisscrossed multiple times for me. Um, it's it, in many ways, it's like everything else is all overdetermined. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> there, there we go. We got the, we've, we've already got the uh, term overdetermined in this interview. So it's been, it's been a left-wing success. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I do study ideology. So I, I, one of the, I, I have read my authors there. Yes. Yes, me too. Although it's, it's been a little while. I mean, I'm amazed. I ran into a guy in the park with my kids and told him about this podcast. And he said, yeah, 
That's interesting. You know, I haven't read Goldman for a while, but I'm really reading a lot of Althusser right now. I mean, this was a man that I just <laughs> met in the park. So, <laughs> wow, that's that interesting. Tells you. And, and I, you know, I do teach um, political ideologies classes. That's been the the was the favorite undergraduate course I had, and the favorite course that I like to teach. Um, and so there's always a unit on anarchism that. Uh, where we do read Goldman and remind people that it's not just some crackpot idea and it's not just chaos and everything else. Yeah, I. it's fascinating for me. I want to get to crossword puzzles soon, but just more of what you're saying. I mean, I, I wrote my dissertation on radical politics and, and social change in the late 19th and the early 20th century. And some significant portion uh of the people oh, by the way i've got bird song outside which i hope is you know murray bookton would be happy or something we've got a nice na nature is existing in this in this podcast um so i would now with my broader definition of anarchism have included almost everyone in my dissertation people like uh john dewey and jane adams and jack london and theodore dreiser within a broad sense of anarchism. Um, Adams, Jane Adams identified as a Tolstoyan, and I'm certainly convinced by Kropotkin that Tolstoy is an anarchist, and Tolstoy is, Tolstoy almost identifies as an anarchist, but Adams is very clear that she is not an anarchist, and she ultimately disagrees with Kropotkin, but besides the fact that she claims to disagree with him, now that I'm setting their ideology side by side, I don't find points of disagreement, and, you know, Ruth Kenna in her book, uh, the government um, of no one. The government of no one. Thank you. She says, you know, if you set someone like Bakunin or Kropotkin side by side by Tol with Tolstoy, you, you can't find key differences. The, the thing people are afraid of is not the ideas. In the same way that you can, you can advocate for something like universal health care in America, but not socialism. You can, you can write a dissertation on radical democracy, which I did, but not mm -hmm. anarchism. But the other thing for me is that has just united this whole tradition I studied, uh, Thoreau, Emerson, into all these American people, and then realizing that Kropotkin and Tolstoy are, are reading these people, and it really is an international movement, and I think the best name for it really is, is anarchism. We, you can call it radical democracy and direct action and voluntary association if you want to. I'm fine with that, but anarchism has some resonances that I also like. Yeah, uh, it, it certainly either <laughs> turns people off or gives you an opportunity to explain it further, um, which, you know, it, I, I think is true generally about radical political stance. Um, it's very, very hard to find folks who in large numbers will embrace it automatically. It takes some education, it takes some effort to persuade or at least explain um, all the connections. And that, that was one of the things I think that still reflects a, a point of wisdom about the new left in the 60s, is that in trying to create a, an American new left without the burden of mm. socialism and Marxism, um, they, they veered toward anarchy in that regard. And, you know, you mentioned Dewey. I'm, I'm a big fan of Dewey as well, have a pragmatic approach to things in my own life. Um, and I, I find that anarchism fits very well with that kind of pragmatism, even though it's not the liberal kind of de technocratic democracy that, that Dewey may have favored it from time to time. It, <laughs> Dewey, it does. Dewey couldn't decide whether he favored that technocratic democracy or not. He changed his mind every 10 years, which you can do if you right. like to be 90. Exactly. Um, so uh, I don't intend to live until 90, but I, I, I do have that sense that it's important to be experimental. It's mm. important to try to try different ways to achieve social change, try different ways to understand human beings and, and the world, try different um, approaches to uh, one's own life as well. Um, that experimental attitude, I think, serves one well for a, a long career or even a shorter one. 
I was I was always afraid to experiment too much with left wing ideas because I was I was worried about the old horseshoe. I was worried. I I, I knew I didn't want to become a Maoist, a, a Leninist, a Stalinist. So I thought, well, definitely don't go farther than Dewey. Don't go don't go from Dewey to something beyond that because I thought the next step was Trotsky. But I have I would say that Goldman or Kropotkin I, I are much further left than Trotsky in my sense because they have this experimental democratic vitality to them that I that I don't find. I mean the Trotskyist tradition is better than the Marxist-Leninist tradition, but the anarchist tradition is where I find that sense of experiment, and it's greatly in accord with the pragmatist tradition that I that I was trained in. Yeah, I, I would agree. And one of the things about the anarchist academics that I've, I've met and worked with is that they're open to influences from all kinds of sources. Um, unlike the Marxist-Leninists that I've met who, <laughs> who had their texts or their you know, sanctioned canon, anarchists uh, tend to be much more available and open to a wide variety of sources to try to see how anarchism interrelates with these other traditions. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, evolution was another major part of my thinking in, in my dissertation. I wrote about Dewey in that respect and Adams and finding Kropotkin. I mean, life, life is this evolving experiment um, it, it was that was just revelatory for me. The other thing I do want to say, I want to get to talking about crossword puzzles soon so we can talk to the book, talk about the book, but I, I really appreciate you being here, being the generation that you are and, and saying that you saw this anarchic energy in the 60s because there are all sorts of people, including plenty of people you could say on the, on the right, if you want to do it that way, but just, you know, uh, quote, real Americans, or how, however you want to put this, people who have a deep respect for, if not the, if not the protesters in, in at the 68 convention in Chicago, for people like MLK and Rosa Parks, and to suggest that that tradition is part of anarchism, which I think clearly looking at it now, it is. But this is a provocative and destabilizing position for a lot of Americans. And it's one that I'm making from a distance, hearing you say that, you know, you were literally there and seeing these currents and able to make this connection across the decades. I, I think that's very cool. And I really appreciate you bringing that to this interview. Oh, you're entirely welcome. I, I can do no other. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I mean, but it is the, it is, it is your, your lived, experience and you're, you're removing it from the intellectual history that I, that I am doing into the, the personal history. And you already mentioned Goldman's book, personal history and anarchism seem to me intertwined in a beautiful and important way, as opposed to the, as you say, these sort of totalizing abstractions that sometimes animate um, the Marxist Leninist traditions. I'm reading Kropotkin's yeah. memoirs of a revolutionist right now. And it's just such a pleasure and yet filled with so much insight. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. There's, um, you know, I don't mean to suggest that that tradition alone has those failings. I think it's easy for um, problems uh, to, to enter even the anarchist tradition, you know, there, there's a constant battle against things like sectarianism. There's a constant battle against sexism and racism and all of the rest. Um, and that's why the experimental approach is, is so vital because you have to, you know, trust kiss language, a permanent revolution yes. here. You have, to, you have to continue to struggle against these things because that's the goal. Our goal is to as anarchists certainly is to critique and remove domination in all its forms. This is what Kenna says, and she's absolutely right as far as I'm concerned, but that's not going to be done in a day. It's not going to be done over a few years. It's going to, it has to be continually addressed in circles, large and small. 
I'm so glad you brought that up. So one of one of the very first questions I got for my podcast that I haven't answered yet was, you know, hey, Graham, can you talk about why you aren't talking more about uh, anarchist women and anarchist people, people of color? And I guess I'll rehearse the answer right now. So if the listeners listening, uh, they can hear that it's, you know, the answer is sort of on the lines. Well, in one sense, if you want to talk about folk anarchism, the the deep cooperation that I think animates everything the way Graeber or Kropotkin argues, then communities of color and women have been the greatest practitioners of anarchism in that sense. But then if you want to say this thing called anarchism and the anarchist canon and people who are labeled anarchism, well, the people in those books are people who achieved a certain amount of fame, had a level of education. The language we use now is privilege, right? So obviously, if you don't do the hard work, your revolutionary leaders, or at least your revolutionary intellects, as you look back, they're going to be whoever was in positions of power at, at that time. And so many of the great feminist writers, you know, people like Mary Shelley were, came from an upper class uh, position and then were given a, a quote, man's education. I mean, Shelley's dad was very clear. He gave her a man's education and the insights that we could have, have been to a certain extent, well, some of them never existed. This is the Virginia Woolf argument. The women never had the time to write these amazing documents and some of them were written and were ignored at the time or have been ignored later. And the hard work of recovering them is, is more than I am able to do a serious job of right now as I'm also a full-time parent, but it's something I'm passionate about finding the people who are doing that work. Right. Right. So the the point is, I think, to just keep at it. Um, you know, you, you you do what you can when you can, um, and hopefully you've got the right spirit and the right um, intentions, the right goals in mind, and um, the rest will take care of itself. Yeah, keep at it. That's what I, I like that as a slogan. Okay, I want to get off anarchism and talk about crossword puzzles. So uh, before we get to the anarchist crossword puzzles in your book, which I, I am loving, by the way, my wife and I were doing some yesterday. What brought you to doing crossword puzzles? What's it like making crossword puzzles? Well, um, I started solving uh, as a result of my stepfather, who uh, was a Polish immigrant and a steel worker in the mill at Gary. Um, and he started doing crossword puzzles, as he told me, um, largely to develop his vocabulary. And at that time, crosswords were largely just about knowing words and knowing definitions and linking the two. Um, but I, so I started solving them and occasionally we would do them. By the time I hit graduate school in the late seventies, I was doing them more frequently, um, but also discovered things like the New York Times crossword uh, on Sunday in their magazine and doing those uh, not successfully <laughs> right away, to be sure. Um, but also getting really excited by uh, Games Magazine, which at the time, as I later found out, was edited by Will Shorts, who was bringing oh. a, new, a new spirit into them, you know, making them more relevant, bringing more contemporary language, contemporary references in them, making them less about um, dictionary knowledge or encyclopedic knowledge and more about wordplay. Um, and that got me interested. And at the time, I, I, when I wasn't writing a dissertation, I tried my hand at constructing a puzzle, um, but I, I didn't do very well. Um, <laughs> You had to do it with graph paper or a grid that you designed, and then you try to put words in, and it was too time-consuming and too bothersome for me. Too many, <laughs> too many erasures, too many, too many pencils ruined, you know. Um, but then, about about the year two thousand, um, I discovered online, just looking around. I was thinking about crosswords then. I was solving a lot more. Um, solving different types of crosswords. Um, and uh, so I thought I'd try my hand at it again. It was something new to develop a hobby or whatever. Uh, found this software 
that created grids for you, help you create grids and help you with selecting words, or at least giving you options, realizing that you, you didn't have to mess with erasers. <laughs> so that was, that, was, that was terrific. So I started doing it, made a few, sold one, and um, that was it. That, I was hooked um, and kept at it, sold a bunch, eventually um, early on, uh, sold several to the New York Times and to other papers got excited by it and have kept up ever since. So I'm, I guess in my ignorance, it had not occurred to me the, 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 the transition from graph paper to uh, maybe we could call it computer assisted design. I mean, uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> it seems like that should have been obvious. I mean, this reminds me, you know, my kids are fascinated uh, when Mr. Rogers goes to the recycling factory. We love to see how the, how the gleaming surfaces of our world uh, are, are maintained and created. I, I do, at least. Um, these days, so many of them are hidden from us because they, they, they are manifestations of atrocities against uh, animals or, or human beings. I wouldn't want uh, Mr. Rogers to go to a 21st century uh, factory farm or something like that. But the idea that the crossword puzzles on the computer now, I didn't I, I, I mean, that just didn't occur to me. Do you think that has a like a democratizing effect? Absolutely. I would say absolutely so. Um, it made it possible for me because I never would have done it otherwise. Uh, and in the intervening years, the last 20 years, has seen an explosion of new constructors with varied interests and varied backgrounds and bringing exciting energy um, into the whole cross world. Um, and it's, it's unbelievable what the availability of this software of various kinds of software and people are innovating software even as we speak. And it, it has just remarkably changed um, the experience of writing and doing crosswords in, in just the 20 years that I've been involved with it. Uh, and I can't imagine what it was like for those people who've been around even longer. It, it's very exciting, uh, but also makes it a little hard as a freelancer to get your work out there because you have to work even harder to have your work stand out because there are just so many people involved in doing such good work um, that it, that's both exciting and challenging at the same time. Man, that is that is absolutely the same case with podcasting. It's again a tech. I mean, it's essentially just a radio show. And if I could have gotten a show like this in the '80s, it would have been a guaranteed success because it would have meant that I made it past some sort of editorial team and were being broadcast to everyone. And lots of money would have been spent broadcasting me and paying me. So there's this absolute thrill that anyone can do this, but. We're, we're, we're still, you know, trying to devote the same amount of our uh, international or national resources towards the people who are making things that we can listen to. And there's so many more, there's so many more people now. I mean, to me, that's a real, an issue that we are struggling with just in the, in the digital age is that now everyone can be a creator, but also the, it used to be so many creative, there were so many middle-class creative jobs and those seem to be gone there's superstar movie makers and superstar podcasters and superstar crossword puzzle makers and it seems like everyone else is a is a freelancer just out there thrilled to be able to have this technology um and i certainly don't want to go back to the old world where only a few people get to do it but in some ways we have the worst of both worlds in which everyone can do it but still only a very few people can afford to do it professionally whether it's podcasting or crossword puzzle making or I mean even a creative thing like acting or, or painting there's far fewer of those you know regular jobs that people can follow this creative career and and you know have a have a house and a and a stable life for themselves and their family it's the blessing and the curse of this digital right. mode but at the same time I wouldn't want it to be a career per se I think I'm happy with it 
being for me uh, an avocation or, and just finding a niche um, and being able to do what I've done and to celebrate that. Um, you know, it goes back to Marx's description of communism. You know, we're hunting in the morning and fishing in the afternoon and doing crossword puzzles <laughs> after dinner. You know, so that kind of vitality still should be there. We don't want everything to become monetized as a career. Although, you know, certainly there are, there are people who, you know, are making crosswords their lives. Um, I'm not in that game, um, but that's okay. I've got other things I like to do too. Yeah, I don't. I don't want podcasting to be my life. I just want to be able to, you know, have ha- have a life and also and also be a podcaster without, you know, giving myself over to the the tyranny of the workplace. I mean, this is David Graeber's argument. We really are making enough wealth for everyone to work a couple of hours. I mean, this is John Maynard Keynes' argument a hundred years ago. We don't need all these people to have all these jobs. There could be so many more podcasters and crossword puzzle makers and violin players. We just have chosen not to, not to live in that utopia. And I'm saying no, at least on my podcast. Yeah, ex- exactly. Well, um, so that's how I got started was to find that software um, and have an early success that rewarded what I was doing. And I said, I can do this. This is fun. Um, let's keep, keep at it. And so there was, you know, occasionally there's a nice spurt of creativity, usually in a downtime, you know, summers and school breaks. Um, but other times I'm, I'm thinking about, words and their relationships and finding inspiration in various ways, you know, something I hear on the radio or something someone says to me, something I think about when I'm reading, say, oh, there's an interesting word and here's a pattern that that makes sense, finding relationships um, and and making notes so (laughs) I can come back and make sure I, I check out whether a puzzle could be constructed out of it. Okay. Fantastic. That brings me. So you mentioned finding your niche. Um, I would not have guessed that there was an anarchist crossword puzzle niche. This is the point where I say I, I read about your book, I think maybe on AK Press's website and, and bought it. This is this is not a situation where I was provided with a book and then provided with an offer to interview. And I'm I'm getting paid by the big fat cats at AK Press, <laughs> the, the small, yeah. beautiful, cooperatively run anarchist press. I found your book and and loved it and, and reached out to you. So tell me how this how this book came to be. It's amazing. Well, you know, I've I've long had friends uh, ask me, you know, would you ever combine your academic interests in politics and ideology with crosswords? And certainly you can't sell them in the freelance market, right? So I said, no, no, that's not going to work. Nobody's going to want to read or solve that kind of a puzzle. Uh, It's certainly not going to be snapped up. But um, increasingly, you know, there's been a lot of change. And again, this comes back to this democratization and the rise of new voices uh, and the new approaches to thinking about crosswords. There are crossword podcasts, for example, uh, one that I like to listen to, Fill Me In, where they've talked a lot about the idea that crosswords are a kind of art form. Uh, And I I agree with that. That's what I enjoy about it. It's it's an expressive activity. Um, I like writing clues because they're like creating miniature poems. very that's, elusive. That's beautiful. And, and all of that. So um, there's that kind of inspiration behind this. There's also been a number of different people who've begun to use crosswords as a way of reaching out and affirming people mm-hmm. and uh, trying to raise money for good causes. Um, there, there have been crossword compilations that people have pulled together um, to raise money for, um, for example, the Baltimore Abortion Fund. Um, There were crosswords um, 
women of letters that were created to raise money for women's groups in January of 2017. Um, Queer Crosswords has done that for the LGBT community. So they were giving people a bunch of crosswords and in exchange for proof that they've given money to these organizations mm-hmm. and activities. And so with that kind of, what shall I say, inspiration that was circulating around in, in, the, in the field, it, it occurred to me that maybe it's time to try to try my hand at constructing crosswords for the community that I'm a part of. Um, and so, you know, I it was on the back burner for quite some time. And then about a year or so ago, um, a theme occurred to me that um, is in the book. And then said, wait, this, this might be it. I, this would certainly be, would have been one that could easily have sold on the freelance market. But it also gave me the inspiration to try to see if a book of crosswords on anarchist themes or with anarchist themes could be produced. And I reached out to a friend who uh, was one of the contributors to the anarchist anthology um, that I co-edited and reached out to a crossword editor just to see, well, what do you think about this idea? And uh, they gave you know, kind of a positive signals. I gave some expressions of support and I wrote a prospectus and sent it into AK Press. And surprisingly, they liked the idea too. So um, I don't think it's surprising at all, Leonard. I mean, this is, you know, <laughs> this this sparked us. I mean, especially I didn't I didn't know, Leonard, about this sort of mu- mutual aid cooperative movement that had emerged in crossword puzzles. Lately, that is right. uh, that is thrilling. I'm learning so much of today, yeah, about this well, today. And so the the idea then for me was that if crosswords is an art form, it can also be a form of outreach and education. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, that brings me back again to my profession as an educator um, and my interest in um, political theory and political ideologies. And so the idea was to try my best to use the tools of crossword construction, uh, grid design, theme construction, wordplay, um, and some creativity to do lots of different kinds of puzzles. I had hoped to do all of them so that they could be likened to ones that get published in, mm-hmm. in the New York Times and other outlets. But that wasn't possible, um, you know, for one reason or another. <laughs> so you've got to, you have some different types of themes. Some are very straightforward, didactic. Um, you know, they're asking you to, to pay attention to certain um, lists of things, as it were. And then there are others that are more standard crossword fare. You know, you're kind of using the certain approaches uh, of wordplay and theme construction that are there. And there are still others that I think broke some ground and were quite creative. Um, and it, it took a few months to compile them all. Uh, I set my goal of, of, uh, of having at least 50 crosswords. Most crossword books have about 60 or 70. Uh, so I, I was very pleased to be able to pull that together. So, I mean, oh, so, so much to say here. First, first of all, um, if, you're, if you're not familiar listeners with AK Press, they are, they are wonderful. When I first started thinking about anarchism, seriously, I was you know, looking on Amazon or Google or whatever for the, the books I needed to do my anarchist education. It just came back to AK Press every, every time. Usually they were the... They were the best source. So I do highly recommend AK Press, not just this book, although I recommend this book as well. And I believe AK Press is going to um, promote this podcast. So th- I'm thanking them for that right now. If you're listening, AK Press, thank you so much. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is I'm really excited. I got this book because as the holiday season approaches, one of the things that tends to happen 
for me is, you know, you get people all in the same room together, all looking at their phones. It's just, it's just a, a, a thing that happens these days. And I remember, you know, when I was, when I was younger, when I was 10, one of the things that would happen when we would gather in those things is my grandmother would do crosswords, but we would all participate. It was a collaborative thing. It was a cooperative thing. And I know I mentioned to you in an email, I used to do crossword puzzles with my coworkers. And then I got switched with a different group of coworkers who were very competitive and crossword puzzles <laughs> were about winning. I'm not that, I'm not that good at them, but I love being able to say, you know, my mother-in-law is staying with us right now and she loves crossword puzzles. And so she, my wife and I are shouting out your clues to one another or passing the, the book around in, in a way that I think is, is cooperative and is in the spirit of anarchism, I didn't occur to me that the actual doing of the crossword puzzle is, is cooperative, right? You are, you, you, you are sending out uh, a, a song and we are completing the melody. If that is not, if that is not too uh, musical of, of a metaphor. And so this idea of, you know, creative, collaborative solving of things. I mean, what is, what is that if not a, if not a metaphor for the, the, the project we are all engaged in as we try and build communities and, and make a better world? Right. There's, um, there's a lot more of that kind of collaboration, of that kind of mutual aid, if you will, um, to crosswords than any of us realized um, long ago. Um, I, I just, you know, you think about crossword solving as a solitary activity, right? You're shut in your room, you're in your favorite chair, and you're shutting out the world so you can focus in on what's happening in the, in the grid. Um, but I, I saw the social aspect of it when I went to my first American crossword puzzle tournament. Um, where 300 plus people and then later six, 700 because the tournament grew, um, were solving together in a competitive situation, but most weren't you know, the, the ace solvers that get through a puzzle like this in a couple of minutes, um, but they were there and then they enjoyed talking about them. Uh, that was phenomenal. That was incredible. And these days there are online tournaments that people can participate in and, and you can do it as, as an individual or you can do it as pairs in these tournaments. There are Twitch streams where people are either solving puzzles or constructing puzzles uh, and folks communicating with each other in the chat feature of the Twitch stream. So there's an incredible world of people interacting over what used to be this very solitary activity. It's, it's unbelievable what has happened again. Again, part of this evolution of, of a cross-world community. Um, the other thing I think that's important to recognize is that like any other book, this did not happen just by me. Right? It required inspiration and research and understanding drawn from all kinds of sources. It required a lot of people who voluntarily <laughs> agreed to test the puzzles to tell me when I was really off base and had done something really stupid or you know, needed to tweak a clue or find better entries. Um, I had, I just sent out a call on, on a Facebook group um, for people interested in crosswords and crossword construction and the like. And lots of people volunteered and I, I made new friends as a result of that. Um, and then I have longstanding lifetime friends, uh, one in particular that I thank in the book who, you know, pretty much solved every puzzle um, that I made for it. And, you know, it, it again is a collaborative effort. Um, and certainly the interactions I've had with the folks at AK Press have, have been equally collaborative too. So it, it's just not, it's not something that 
a single individual puts forward any any more than any other product that we have, we have to acknowledge that there are contributions from large numbers of people. Yeah, there's this there's this podcast, I think it's with Guy Raz, a radio show. I, I can't stand it. It's called How I Built This. And um, some CEO comes in and explains how they built whatever it is they 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 built, you know, Jeff Bezos. Here's how I built Amazon. Built. I'm pretty sure Jeff, yeah. you didn't, I doubt you lifted a hand. I don't think you built <laughs> anything. Um, and that, you know, we have a real problem uh, that I think anarchism can help us with of acknowledging the cooperative nature of everything in our world. And I talked about this before when I maybe unwisely brought up, con- you know, concentrated animal feeding, whatever, uh, fa- factory farms. We, we have a tendency to want to hide the people whose labor makes our our lives and our creative expressions possible so thank you leonard for for mentioning all of the people that went into this this book so leonard leonard williams and his and his community produced black blocks white squares i also need to say just awesome awesome title i mean i would have bought the book for the title alone well, um, that too is a, a product of uh, community and, and inspiration. Certainly, you know, the title riffs on Franz Fanon's you know, Black Skin, White, white Mask. mask. Yep. Um, but also a, another book that influenced me, um, that one has certainly, but A.K. Tom- Thompson's Black Block, White Riot, mm-hmm. um, which was one of those A.K. Press books that I, I've enjoyed. And so it, it seemed appropriate, first of all, to keep riffing on that, but also because black blocks and white squares are the, the very right elements of a crossword, right? <laughs> you, you can't have a crossword without those. So um, it, it fit and it, and it worked. Um, so I'm, I'm very pleased with that. It, it, it made sense to me. I like to have a title that means something to me uh, and even in my academic work, if if I can't find a title that expresses what I think about it, um, or that makes me proud to to say, well, this is my article, then I won't write it. You know, I, I have to have a title that means something to me. Yeah, me too. Me too, actually. Um, so I, I want to say I, I think we should wrap up soon, and I've taken a lot of your time. Something that I didn't prepare, so you can you don't you don't have to answer this question. But do you have any advice? I mean, I'm thinking that there are people who listen to this podcast who have never made a crossword puzzle, who might want to try and make a crossword puzzle. So, is there a place to 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 start? How would you advise someone who's listened to this and thought, "Oh, that would be cool"? What what should they do? Oh my, you, you have <laughs> lots of roots now. You have you have many more roots now than you had when I started. Um, there are Facebook groups um, that um, focus on crossword collaboration where you can find a mentor, particularly if you're um, a person of color or a woman identified constructor. Um, but even if you're not, there are lots of places like that. Um, there's a, a website called Cruciverb. There is a website that allows you to, that gives you cross word construction software that you can just work on, on in, in the browser. Um, and then you can share your puzzles with people, get some feedback. Um, it's called CrossShare. There's Crossword Twitter. Ah, I sh- of course um, there is. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, so you can find lots of people who are providing uh, that kind of assistance. There are many, many, many people who give enormous time and credit and help new constructors along. I'm certainly happy to do that. Um, I I taught a crossword course in in a continuing education program once, and there was one person who was clearly really excited by that idea and wanting to publish um, his own crosswords, wanting to learn how to make them. And um, it turns out, you know, he's now published. He's, he's had a few publications and 
I get to follow that. And, you know, we kind of congratulate each other whenever we have a publication. Um, so, and I, I've met, you know, many people uh, through crossword tournaments, which, you know, it sounds really competitive, but it's not. It's, it's really just a large group of people getting together and, and exploring the, the pastime that they enjoy. Wow. Okay. So basically, people could um, send me an email, follow me on Twitter, and I'd be happy to direct them uh, more explicitly since I can't remember URLs off the top of my head. <laughs> I'll, I will, I'll try and grab some and put them uh, in, with the, in, in with the episode. Um, but you also put them in the show notes. Yes, yes and, you'll be, and, and you'll be able to, listeners, you'll be able to find them. Um, I don't yeah, think I'd be happy to do that. That would, oh. be, that would be excellent. Be happy Great. to do that. Listeners, uh, if you're looking for anarchist stocking stuffers, uh, I highly recommend Black Blocks White Squares. Um, I told my wife to get it for me for Christmas, and then the next day I went out and bought it. So uh, that didn't, so that didn't work out. And I went to my local bookstore. I mean, I'm in Chapel Hill. It's a, it's a pretty academic and left wing place. And I asked them to order it for me, and they looked it up in the computer and they said, "Oh no, we've got that on the shelf." So they just, they, they, they had it. So check out your your local bookstore. Yes, by all means, just go to the AK Press website. Yes, and the. The AK Press website. Um, I love buying directly from them as well. Absolutely. Um, anything else, Leonard, you would like to say? It's been a delight to have this conversation with you. I, I am very grateful for the invitation. Happy we could connect. And uh, I look forward to hearing more of your podcasts without me in them. <laughs> well, perhaps I can look forward to having more of my podcasts with you in them. Uh, and and, and I'll, give, I'll give you a break, but you may get another email from from me i would love to have you on again and um thank thank you so much leonard this has been wonderful it's been a delight thank you that is that thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that interview as much as i did all i have to do now is remind you that if you have any questions or comments you can send them to everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com and you can go to my website everydayanarchism.com if you want to sign up for my newsletter or provide financial support for the show. You can also help the show by just telling a friend about it, sharing it on social media, or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. The theme music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.